Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we finish our reading of the book of Joel with the third chapter. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations, and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for Yahweh has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Yahweh. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Yahweh roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But Yahweh is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of Yahweh and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for Yahweh dwells in Zion. This is the word of the Lord. The text has been building. We went from having... A locust swarm as God's judgment against Judah that they needed to repent of and turn to him. And we don't really see much of that here. Now we see enemy nations mentioned that are brought against God's people, that have come against God's people, and ultimately will be judged. And so we're going to get some 
some pictures here of, of that we're going to see. I'm going to talk about Satan. I'm going to talk about Revelation as we go through the text together. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Indeed, again, multiple times. So he's restoring them from that locust swarm, 8th century, 9th century, wherever this is. He's going to restore them uh, again when he brings them back from exile in Babylon. And ultimately, he's going to restore us, which is what we're going to focus on in the chapter as we get to go into paradise with him. He's going to gather all the nations and bring them to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's one of the reasons we place this book where we do, chronologically, because Jehoshaphat is Jerusalem's king, Judah's king, in the 9th century BC. Uh, his reign ended, I believe, in 848. So that's a possibility for the time frame here that Joel would know this name to make use of it. But Jehoshaphat's name means the judgment of Yahweh. So God is going to bring people to the Valley of his judgment. That's the picture. And he's going to bring his, the enemies of his people there, who have harmed his people, who have scattered them, divided up the land, who have cast lots for them. So, slavery. Right. I'm going to roll, roll some dice to see you know, if I get that one or that one. Traded them for prostitutes, sold them for wine. They have abused and harmed God's people. And this isn't just Judah and Jerusalem anymore. Consider what's done to Christians in various countries and throughout the world today. This judgment comes... Great is the day of Yahweh. Awesome is the day of Yahweh. Fear it. Repent before it's too late. The Lord spares. So God then speaks to Tyre and Sidon, which are port cities on the Mediterranean Sea to the northwest of Jerusalem. Uh, wealthy, famed places because, again, port cities. They bring in trade from across the Mediterranean Sea for that whole region. Philistia is also on the Mediterranean Sea to the west of, southwest of Judah and Jerusalem. These are enemies of God's people. And he, if they have been trying to pay him back, if they have been trying to wrong God or harm God and his people, God is going to return that now upon them. And they have indeed. They've sold his people. They've plundered his goods. They've taken his things into their own false temples and so forth. So God will restore his people and he's going to repay these for their evil that they have done. He will sell their people as slaves. Even the reference to the Greeks might bring to mind Alexander the Great conquering this whole region in the future. Proclaim this among the nations. Alright, so everything up until this point in the book, Joel has been told to tell to the people of God. And for prophets, that was risky enough. I mean, oftentimes the people rejected them, sought to harm them, and so forth. But now, go and tell the nations. Joel is being sent to the other kingdoms to talk to them, the word of God. And it's, a, it's an invitation to war. Talk about risky for Joel. But the Lord will protect him to do what he needs to do. Consecrate for war. Stir, stir up your mighty men, but not just those. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Everyone go to battle. Turn your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. So those metal instruments you use in your fields to work your crops, yeah, heat them up, bend them, make them into weapons. It's time to fight. Actually, the opposite of what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 2 verse 4 
Um, and Micah, chapter 4, verse 3, the idea of God's restoration eventually, that in this prophetic language comes from turning swords into plowshares. So no more instruments of war. But this is God summoning the final battle. I mean, really, that's the way to take this, the final battle. This is Revelation chapter 16, chapter 19, and chapter 20. Three times in the book of Revelation is the picture of the final battle between God and Satan displayed for us, where Satan musters together all of the evil in this world to fight against God in one last-ditch effort to overcome, to try to claim victory against God, to be kings in this world as they want to be, to live however they want to live. They fight except for they don't. I invite you, I encourage you to read Revelation chapter 16, 19, and 20. This is what people fear Revelation for. They're afraid of the final judgment. They're afraid of the battle between the devil and God because they think it means great destruction across the earth. But read the accounts. Again, Revelation 16, 19, 20. Read those three chapters And note what's missing about the battles. What should happen in a battle? There should be a battle. And in all three of those chapters, there's not. Satan gathers his troops together for war, and then God simply declares, it is done. It's over. Because Christ has already won the battle on the cross. His blood shed for you, it's finished. As he said in John 19. So that's a wonderful way to study this text is in parallel with the final judgment that God is going to bring. You can talk to your children, why can God be so confident to say, let them come? Because he's God. And we can't fight against God. We don't stand a chance. This is going to come up again as we keep going into the next section here. Verse 12, let the nations stir themselves, let them come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge not war. They come for battle, but they don't get a battle. They get judgment. They think they're coming to fight, but they're actually coming to their own court session. Maybe that's a good way to phrase it. They've got the wrong picture. Verse 13 is very much Revelation language. Revelation chapter 14, verses 19 and 20 use this very same illustration. So the picture is going out to your grape harvest using the sickle, which is a farming implement, to cut the vines and harvest your grapes and put them in the vat so that you can, you know, step in the vat with your feet and squish the grapes and squish out all the juice and make your wine. Except instead of grapes, it's the enemy. The harvest in Revelation 14, it's twofold. There's the, the good, and then there's the harvest of those who are opposed to Christ, just as the Gospels phrase it with Jesus speaking. So here, this wine press is a picture of all of God's enemies being gathered together and then crushed. And so the, the wine press being pressed, out comes well, wine, the, the, the juice of the grape, is the same color, roughly, as blood. They didn't have a whole bunch. They didn't have, like, Kool-Aid and powdered drinks and stuff. They had water and they had wine, maybe milk, rarely. So often blood and wine are, are considered together, and we do that with the Lord's Supper, certainly because Christ 
establish that, but this is a different picture. This is blood and wine being used together because they're roughly the same color. For the day of Yahweh is near. Sun and moon darken. It's the third time in the book we've seen that referenced. I think it was once in each chapter. Uh, Yahweh roars from Zion, utters his voice. Even at his uttering, even the, the slightest word from him, the heavens and the earth quake. That could indeed be a reference to the end times where Jesus tells us that the heavens and the earth will pass away. But Yahweh is a refuge to his people, the stronghold to the people of Israel. So again, I'm looking at this point to the end of the, the world kind of judgment, to the enemies of God being gathered together, but Yahweh is a refuge to his people. So while he judges them, he spares us. He is our shield, our fortress, our stronghold, while the enemy is destroyed. This is the picture of the day of judgment. We have nothing to fear on the great and awesome day of Yahweh. Because when he comes, when Christ returns, he gathers all people together for judgment. And this is Revelation 20's language, that everyone will be judged by what's written in his book. Those who don't trust in Christ will be judged by what is written in their own book, which has, holds everything he's ever done, thought, said, all of his sins, and he won't be worthy of entering paradise. But for those who believe, we will be judged by the book of life, which is Christ's book, in which our name is written because we are one of the good things the Lord has done by creating and redeeming us. That's a beautiful picture. I, I really enjoy that language in Revelation 20. So waves of judgment and rest- restoration throughout this book of Joel, uh, with the locusts, with Assyria, with Babylon, with the final judgment of the end of time, we can talk about all four of those pictures. 800-722-587 BC, and the unknown date at which Christ returns. Jerusalem shall be holy. Strangers shall never again pass through it. Revelation again talks this way. Jerusalem and Revelation, the new Jerusalem of Revelation 21, is the church. It is the bride of Christ. It is us. We are that church, that building, that city, the body of Christ. Uh, Revelation 21 starts out sounding like it's a city, but when you read on, verses 8 and 9, there's an angel that comes and says he's going to show John the bride of Christ, and then he shows him the church. He shows him the new Jerusalem, the city. So that's how we know uh, that the city is the church. I'm going to come back to that, the very last phrase, the Lord Yahweh dwells in Zion. He dwells in Jerusalem. He dwells in the church. This is Christ in us and the idea that in paradise we get to be with him forevermore. He will dwell in the midst of his people. You can pick that up as a question to talk about as a family with verse 20. Judah will be inhabited forever. Where is it that we will live forever? This is getting to that that final goal, that, that conversation around paradise, that we get to live with Christ there. So we see some restoration, that the mountains shall drip sweet wine, hills flowing with milk, the stream beds shall flow with water, so a restoring of all the things from chapter 1, the wine is back, the milk is back, the, the streams are even filled with water again to the point in 
verse 19 and 18 there, they will water the valley of the Shittim. Now, the valley of Shittim is west of Jerusalem. It's a pretty dry place, but even it will be abundant with water because the Lord is providing. This is also Revelation language. Revelation chapter 22, that the water would flow, a river would flow from the throne of God himself and water his garden of paradise. This is baptism. This is the living water Jesus talks about to the woman at the well that that wells up within her. This is good. Good news from God. A fountain shall come forth from the house of Yahweh, from the temple, from the throne of God, from God himself to us. Because the temple of Jerusalem, in the, again, Revelation, is Jesus. We do see that language already in the Gospels. Tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. They think he's talking about the building. He's talking about his body. Egypt, Edom, those are enemies of God's people. They'll be destroyed, as we've seen throughout the chapter. For doing violence to God's people. And this holds true to this day. I mean, the enemies of God's people, if they don't repent, they also will be destroyed. So we pray for their repentance. One of the themes in Revelation is that we would have this urgency to share Christ with our neighbor before the day comes. So God will avenge their blood. It's Romans 12. Vengeance is not for us. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Also, Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs under the throne crying out, How long, O Lord, until he avenges their blood? And there he tells them to be patient a little longer, that there are still more martyrs to join them. God's patience with this world continues until the final martyr falls. And on that day, Christ returns. And we don't know what that is. We don't know who it will be. We don't know if there is only one martyr left to die for Christ or if there are yet millions. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be yet a thousand years. We don't know. But we rejoice looking forward to the day when Christ returns and brings us home. So Joel, the prophet, has moved through these waves of judgment that we can see, these waves of restoration that we can see as his immediate context speaking to Judah certainly also applies to us and the vision of paradise with Christ. Let us praise the Lord incarnate, Christ who suffered in our place. Jesus died and rose victorious that we may Oh